Well, as I said, we're going to start a new book of study today. We're actually going to return to the Old Testament. Uh, we, we were in the Old Testament previously, then we took a little break from the Old and went to the New. We did the book of Romans, the book of 1 Corinthians. Today we are going to return pretty much to where we left off. About 15 months ago, we studied First and Second Chronicles. Uh, and today we're going to study, and we're going to start, the study of the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. So we will be spending the next three, four months, or whatever it may be, in the Old Testament. If you look in your Bibles, uh, table of contents, you'll notice that immediately following First and Second Chronicles in our Bibles are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And chronologically, these books immediately follow the events that are taking place in First and Second Chronicles as well. First and Second Chronicles, you may recall, were considering the history of the Jewish people, all the way back from the beginning, from uh, the genealogy of Adam, making their way to the establishment of the nation of Israel. It's chronicled there. Uh, the kingdom under King Saul, then King David. Uh, and First Chronicles primarily looks at the life of King David and his uh, administration. Then Second Chronicles begins by looking at the life of King Solomon, David's son. First ten chapters or so of Second Chronicles deal with that. And then finally, as the, the book continues until you hit the 36th chapter, you're looking at a succession of kings. The nation divides in half. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Each one of those kingdoms have their own kings that are in succession one after the other and also concurrent with the opposite uh, empire, the northern empire or the southern empire. And that's the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles comes to an end with the people of Israel being dragged away into captivity. That the Babylonian Empire has risen up, conquered the area of Jerusalem and Judah in particular, and takes away the people into captivity. And so for context, what I thought would be good is if you would flip back one page, so right now you should be in the book of Ezra, flip back one page to Second Chronicles, and starting in verse 15 of the last chapter, chapter 36, it reads this way. It says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, and until there was no other remedy. Therefore, God brought up against them, the children of Israel, the king of the Chaldeans. Now another name for the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. Who killed their young men with the sword, that is the Babylonians killed the Jewish people, with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, the temple. And they had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. God gave them into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God. And they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And they burned all of its palaces with fire and destroyed all of its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. 
Well, as I said, Ezra and Nehemiah, they pick up where 2 Chronicles leaves off. As a matter of fact, the final two verses of 2 Chronicles are the exact same word for word as the first three verses of the book of Ezra. And it's likely that the same person that wrote the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles is the one who wrote the book of Ezra. We don't know for certain who that is, but most scholars suggest and, and uh, suspect that it was the person described by the name of Ezra. And if you've read through the book of Ezra lately, you know that Ezra, this scribe, he becomes prominent in the book in chapter 7 of the book. And so it's believed that he is the one that wrote the book of Ezra as well as those other two Old Testament books of First and Second Chronicles. As I read in the concluding words of Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Specifically, remember verse, 30, or verse 19, it says, And the Babylonians burned the house of God, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And Ezra and Nehemiah are two books that are going to speak of the rebuilding, first, of the house of God. That's what the book of Ezra is about. And then the walls of Jerusalem. That's what the book of Nezer, uh, Nehemiah, I should say, are about. They're books that speak of the return of the Jewish people from captivity to the land. And they're books about, really, they're books about restoration. Physical restoration of the land and rebuilding their homes and the walls and the temple and so on. But far more important, I believe, is they're books about spiritual restoration. Restoration of a people that had wandered away from God and God's ways, and as a result of that wandering, are now experiencing the consequences of that disobedience. They're books about restoration. Is there a place for the one that has wandered to be restored? Does the Bible teach that the prodigal can actually return to God and that God will accept them? Does God accept our cries for forgiveness and renewal? I see a lot of you are already shaking your head. Absolutely. The Lord loves us. The Lord and the message of the Bible from cover to cover, and specifically the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, is that our God is a restoring God. The Bible is full of God's call to his people to return to him after periods of stumbling. So perhaps if you've looked at the book of Zechariah recently, you remember these words. It says in the first chapter, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord. King Hezekiah, we have it recorded for us in Second Chronicles chapter 30. He exhorted the people because they had strayed he exhorts them to return. He says this, If you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who have led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious. He's compassionate. And he will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Does the Bible teach restoration? Absolutely. Jeremiah, the prophet, he pleaded with his listeners. He said this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return to the... Then I will restore you. And before me, you will, will, you will stand. Jesus is a restoring God. He knows that his people are going to stumble. He knows that each of us, we, are going to stumble. And he knows it because it's our nature. We're sinners. Even though we've been sanctified by God, we're sinners. And we could be humming along and everything could be going great. And then we're going to have a period of stumbling. And God wants his people to return. Returning and restoration, they're themes 
of this book that we're going to be coming back to again and again and again. But I would suggest to you today, if you've been straying in your walk with the Lord, the first thing that I'd like to do as we start this book is commend you first for being here this morning. Oftentimes when we are in a period of straying, we feel, you know what, I don't want to be around the saints of God. Everyone's going to look at my face and they're going to be able to know that I didn't read my Bible this week and I didn't treat everybody as I should have treated them and they're going to think things about me and they're probably going to say things about me. So I'll just avoid contact until I get back right with the Lord. And when I'm back in a good place with the Lord, I'll go back to church again and then I'll judge everybody else, uh, whatever it may be. Well, the reality is this. Nobody's judging you. Nobody knows what's going on in your heart anyway here. And this is the place of restoration. Certainly, this isn't the only place of restoration but gathering with the saints of God is a very good place for you to be. And I want to encourage you that may these books of study encourage you that, you know what, you can be in a right place with God. The scripture says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And when we do that, we know that the Lord will restore us and that he will bless us with his presence and cleansing. And so that's going to be a theme that we'll come back to again and again. But rather than waiting to the end of the book, let's deal with ourselves right now. Now, there's a final thing that I want to highlight before we jump into the book of study, and that's sort of a timeline of the history of things, just to give us a little bit of perspective. Well, where does this book fit into the context of the history of the Old Testament? And as I mentioned to you, perhaps you recall, the books of First and Second Chronicles, they recall the history of the Jewish people. First Chronicles really looks at King David. And then following King David, he's 1 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles begins by looking at King Solomon. And then after about 10 chapters, it jumps into the rest of the kings of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That is approximately these years. David, approximately 1,000 B.C. Put in perspective, Abraham about 2,000. Moses around 1,500, something like that. Uh, so that is David, 1,000 B.C. The captivity, the end of the secession of the kings of Israel, that's about 600 B.C. All right, so we're covering a period of about 400 years. Ezra comes on the scene immediately following that year up there. You see 600. In 600 B.C., it was actually 605, but roughly 600 B.C., the Babylonians attack the children of Israel. And the Babylonians would attack the children of Israel over a period of about 20 years in three successive waves. The first one is in 605 B.C. This is when Daniel the prophet, you're familiar with Daniel, you're familiar with guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. All of them were taken to Babylon during the first wave. So roughly around the year 605 B.C. is the first wave of attack by the Babylonians. The second wave takes place in 597. So almost 10 years later, the Babylonians come back to the area of Israel, back to Jerusalem, and they lead another group of people captive. If you're familiar with your Bibles, you read, you know, this is when Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, is taken away into captivity there in Babylon as well. That's 597. And then there was a third and final wave of invasion by the Babylonians, and that comes in in 586 B.C. And it's in 586 that the temple of the city of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem are destroyed. And basically everyone is taken out of those areas. They're either killed or they're brought away as captive. Jeremiah, if you're familiar with his Old Testament book and the prophecy, Jeremiah is writing during this final invasion. 
And he's speaking about what is going on. He happened to be in prison in a pit as they're coming in and they are invading. And so there's three successive waves of invasions. And it's after the last one, the 586 one, that the people of Israel are taken out of the land for a period of 70 years. And 70 years is an exact fulfillment of the scripture. As I said, Jeremiah is down there in a pit. A very interesting thing occurs. While Jeremiah is in jail, the reason why Jeremiah was in jail is because he was a prophet to the people of Israel. And he would tell the people of Israel, Judah in particular, that uh, Babylon is coming and you're going to be judged because of your sin. But if you repent, God can do a work and God will restore you. And the people began to mock uh, Jeremiah. And the people began to say to Jeremiah, we're tired of you. Well, you're, you're so unpatriotic. You, you say these things and you make us feel bad about ourselves and we don't like you and you must stop. And he wouldn't stop because God had put something on his heart to share with his people. But the people wouldn't listen. They eventually throw Jeremiah into prison. And it's while Jeremiah is in prison, as I said, that he hears the enemy armies invading Jerusalem. And he calls a messenger. He calls one of his assistants, if you will, somebody to come to him. And he said, here's what I would like you to do. I hear the armies up north or up above me, what are going on there? What I would like you to do is go down to the realtor's office, find a property of land, and buy it for me, and bring the deed back to me. And you can imagine, people are like, well, that's silly. They're taking over the land. Nobody's going to own anything in here. Why would you waste your money? And all this sort of stuff. And he said to him, because I'm doing it as a lesson, that people will know we are coming back to this land. That the prophet here, that it was testifying that the destruction was going to come, is foolish enough to buy land when the enemies are entering in. But I'm doing it because in 70 years, we will come back to this land. And I'll have a nice piece of property that I could own here. And so Jeremiah says this, verse 20, chapter 25, he says, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. Declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants against all these surrounding nations. All this land shall become a ruin and a waste. And all these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Not just some indefinite period of time, but specifically for 70 years. It goes on. And then, when the 70 years are done, when they're completed, I will punish the king of Babylon God says. Would you please flip in your Bibles to the right to the book of Daniel? So you're going to go to the right. You're going to pass books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And I'd like you to come to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Okay? It's about seven or eight books, maybe ten books to the right. Daniel, chapter 5. Now, as I said earlier, Daniel was a young man, they estimate 15, 16 years of age, that was brought captive from Jerusalem, or that area, to the city of Babylon during that first wave of invasion. Just a teenager. And as we discover in the book, as Daniel begins to grow in age, he has a front row seat to the action of the empire of Babylon rising up, conquering the known world, and then actually receding away into the pages of history. And in the verse that I read from the book of Jeremiah, you may recall, Jeremiah mentions that the king of Babylon would rise up and then after 70 years be punished. Daniel chapter 5 speaks of that punishment. Now at the start of the captivity, when Daniel was taken to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, was the king of Babylon. Here now in Daniel chapter 5, 70 years has passed. 
Nebuchadnezzar has come and he's gone. He's died. His son had taken the throne and he's died. And now his grandson, a fellow by the name of Belshazzar, is sitting on the throne. And Belshazzar, in Daniel chapter 5, he's the one that is going to be judged and punished. So by now I assume you made it to Daniel 5. Starting in verse 1, we read this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Can you imagine gathering a thousand people together for a feast? This is an enormous celebration there. And Belshazzar is drinking the wine. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 2. Now Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, and I think we're allowed to add a word here, much wine, because it certainly seems to have influenced him. It says, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, that they be brought, and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So we read in Second Chronicles uh, that as part of the destruction of Jerusalem, what Nebuchadnezzar did was gathered up all the holy vessels from the temple, and he brought them back to his kingdom there in Babylon. And now Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, says, go get those holy vessels. We're having a party. What better way to celebrate than to celebrate with the holy vessels of the nations that we have conquered? And so they bring these holy vessels in and they pour their wine in it and they begin to drink. Essentially what they are doing is this. They are taking their fist and they're, uh, this thing, what's this called? They're shaking. Is that the word? Shaking? And they're shaking it there at God and saying, we beat you. We've conquered you. They're not just saying this to the children of Israel, but they're celebrating that they have conquered the God of Israel, the God of this temple, the God of heaven here. Well, as you can imagine, God doesn't like that. And so it goes on. It says, well, it continues. It says, then they brought the, in the golden vessels they had taken out of the temple, the house of God, and the king and his lords and others, they drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And as I said, God doesn't appreciate that. So notice verse 5, and immediately... The fingers of God, excuse me, the fingers of a human hand appeared and they wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Heavenly graffiti. As God begins to carve into the stone of this palace. You're familiar with the phrase, the handwriting on the wall? It actually comes from here. We often think of the words written on the wall, but actually it comes from this phrase, the hand is writing on the wall. And somehow, I don't know how it happened, but somehow there, as they're having this feast and they're drinking from the holy vessels and they're mocking ultimately the God of heaven, God and his finger begins to write on the wall. And Belshazzar sees it and he sees the words that are there. Skip down to verse 9 of Daniel 5. It says, And King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. I think it's verse 6 or a few verses earlier. It speaks of the fact that his limbs became loosened. Differing interpretation. One has to do with his knees began to shake. Some people think it means that. But others have interpreted that his bowels were loosened. And so you can imagine, the guy did what, you know, that. You know, and so on. This guy was scared to death, as you would be scared to death as well. Now, the language that was written on the wall was a language that they were not familiar with. And so Belshazzar, a thousand people there, does anyone know what that says? No. Well, go find the wise men and the people that are out there. Maybe somebody knows. Nobody knew what it had to say. And they're doing everything they can to figure this out. And in that process of trying to figure these things out, the queen of Babylon is reminded, you know, there's a guy 
that just seems to know things that nobody else knows. You know, he's the one, he's a go-to guy. Daniel. And she said, I remember from years ago when he answered questions of your grandfather. And so she says of Daniel, there's a man in the kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Ultimately, she means God, the holy, um, our holy God that we know. And so she gives instructions. She said, you should call him. Verse 12 says, now let Daniel be called. He'll tell you what the interpretation is. He'll explain it to you. Now, this isn't a study of the book of Daniel. So let me skip to the chase here. Suffice it to say this. Daniel communicated a message to Belshazzar, and here's the message. Belshazzar, you're a goner. It's over for you, buddy. More specifically, that's my translation. More specifically, it says, God has numbered, this is uh, verse 26, God has numbered the days of your kingdom, and he's brought it to an end. You've been weighed in the balances, and you've been found wanting. You've been weighed in the balances, and you've come up short. And so God's done with you. Judgment was coming swiftly on Belshazzar, and specifically here, or on, on Babylon, and specifically on Belshazzar. Notice verse 30 of Daniel 5. It says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. That very night. Because that very night is when the Medes and the Persians, a new rising empire on the scene, they came in, they were able to conquer the city of Babylon, they were able to interrupt this particular party, and establish their reign over the city there of Babylon and all the inhabitants, including the Jewish people. The Babylonian nation had come and it had gone. They had served God's purposes for the specific period of time that God had them accomplishing his will. And now God was raising up a new people that would be led by new kings that in reality, you can think of it this way, that would be used as God's chess pieces on the playing board of world history as God is just moving things around to accomplish his purposes. Specifically, that king was a man by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus would be one that would, he would be the one that would grant permission to the Jewish people that they could return again to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar would never do that. Belshazzar would never do that. But now a new king is in place, and he is going to grant them permission to return to the land and rebuild their temple. And what's fascinating, I would suggest, is that that too is prophesied. Now, some of you say, well, Greg, lots of things are prophesied in the Bible. I mean, just a moment ago, you shared about Jeremiah's prophecy, about Nebuchadnezzar and all these things. So what makes this so fascinating? Well, glad you asked that question. Turn with me to Isaiah. Okay, now that's to the left. You're going to pass books like Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. I'm sure some of you are thinking, come on, man. This is supposed to be a study of the book of Ezra. Somebody tell him. I know that this is a study of the book of Ezra, and we're getting there, but I think you're going to like this. Isaiah 44, starting, and while you're still turning, I'll tell you just sort of background. Starting in, in verse 21, God, speaking through Isaiah, begins to recount all of his mighty deeds and who he is and his attributes and his nature. And so, in verse 24, he says, you know, I formed you from the womb. I formed you. I put you together to be the person you are. Verse 22 talks about how he's plotted out their transgressions. Another place it says, I made all things. And I stretched out the heavens. And then he says this. This is verse 26. So Isaiah 44, verse 26, it says, Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. So God said, this is what I'm going to do. 
Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. The, the city is going to be in, uh, inhabited again. I'll raise it back up. Continuing in verse 28 of 44. It says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. That's what Cyrus is going to say. Go build Jerusalem. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Verse 2, I'll go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes that are hidden, is the idea, in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. Uh, if you're not familiar, the Medes and the Persians rose up, rose up and pretty much conquered the known world of that day. So there were the Assyrians that had conquered the known world and the Babylonians that come in under Nebuchadnezzar and other conquered the known world. They're replaced by the Medes and the Persians. They'll be replaced a hundred or so years later by the Greeks. The Greeks will be replaced by the Romans. And that brings us to the New Testament period of time. And here in this prophecy, God is saying, I'm raising up a guy by the name of Cyrus. He will be my anointed, my chosen one. He calls him my shepherd. He's going to accomplish my purposes. I'll break down all of the iron gates that would stop him, and he'll conquer the known world. Now, here's why God is doing that. Verse 4, he says, for the sake of my servant Jacob. God did all of that for the nation of Israel to accomplish his purposes. He goes on, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you even though you don't know me. Cyrus wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a follower of the one true God. He was a man that worshiped and served all of his other gods as all of the people of Persia did at that particular time. But God says, even though you don't know me, I'm going to use you to accomplish my purposes. He says, I am the Lord. And there is no other besides me. There is no God. Now the first century historian, that is, he wrote during the first century. And we're very fortunate to have uh, his, basically his book that is available to us. And that is uh, the historian Josephus. And Josephus wrote a lot about the history of the Jewish people. And it's a fascinating read alongside of your Bible. Now, if in doubt, believe your Bible. Certainly so. But you can read about things that aren't necessarily mentioned in the Scripture and more insight is given to you about those. And of course, you take it with a grain of salt, you know, and you look at it and you say, wow, that's interesting. That, that's telling and so on. And jo Josephus tells us that Daniel, this man that I was sharing with you, that is at this party that said, this is what the words mean when the enemy armies come in and kill Belshazzar, that Daniel had a conversation with the king of the Medes and the Persians, this guy Cyrus. And it's during that conversation with him that he said, you know what, your name's in the Bible. Matter of fact, you're in the Bible. And he said, oh, that, that's pretty interesting. No, it is more than interesting. And here's why it's more than interesting. It's one thing for Jeremiah to prophesy about Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar was a contemporary of Jeremiah's. And he could have got the newspaper. He could have read what was going on and said, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come here. Just like you and I, we could talk about Benjamin Netanyahu is going to do something. Well, that's not that fascinating because the guy is a world ruler. He's probably going to do something on a daily basis. Here's the thing about Cyrus. Cyrus did not rule over the Medes and the Persians for another 200 years from when Cyrus, uh, excuse me, Isaiah was writing. He wasn't even born for another 150 years. So here is Isaiah empowered by God 
prophesying that a man is going to rise up and name the guy by name that isn't even born yet. See, I find that amazing and remarkable. And would you, could you just imagine for a moment, what sort of an impact would it have on you if somebody came to you and said, hey, can I show you something here? And your name was in the scripture with a message following it. Fred, this is what I want you to do today. It would blow your mind, and you'd be amazed, and no doubt it would get your attention. And this verse, if Daniel indeed did get the opportunity to speak with Cyrus, this verse had an impact on Cyrus, as it would have on you. And that brings us to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. So turn back to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, because the fact that God got Cyrus's attention impacted what Cyrus would go on to do next. And in many ways you could say, because of what Cyrus did next, we have the books of Ezra and the books, the book of Nehemiah. So Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, and he also put it into writing. Now, an interesting thing about the difference between the Babylonian Empire and the um, media Persian, Persian Empire is their philosophy of governing. They both had the same philosophy, let's conquer the known world. But after they conquered various people, they went about governing these captives in a different way. The Babylonians felt that the best way to conquer a people and is to take the people out of their land, take them out of a place of comfort, out of a place of knowledge, and dump them somewhere else in the world. And take the people that were there and put them somewhere else. And now everyone is thrown off. Nobody knows what's going on. And so like a dog backed in the corner, you just sit and I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Okay? And so that's how the Babylonians governed. That's why the children of Israel, uh, in millions and millions of them, were taken from the land of Jerusalem and the land of Israel and brought to Babylon, where they would have to live for a period of 70 years. Interesting, I think, because... When the uh, Medes and the Persians come into power, they have a completely different philosophy of how to govern and how to conquer people. And their philosophy is basically you can get more done with sugar than with the other thing. You know, again, I don't even know that line there as well. It's this thing, whatever that is. But you can get a little more done by treating people nicely. And so their philosophy is this. You can go back to your land. They actually return people. So where are you guys from? Well, we've been here 70 years. I guess I live down the street. No, no, where are you from originally? Well, I'm from Israel. Well, you can go back there if you want to. And so they let people go back to their native land as long as you understand that we're in charge, you know, and you'll do things our way and you'll respect us and so on and so forth. But you can go back to your land. You can worship your gods. As a matter of fact, if you go back to your land and worship your gods, you make sure you pray for us. We'll take all the prayers that we can get. And so pray for us when you go back to that particular land. So they had a completely different philosophy. There's an historian, his name is Derek Kidner. He says this. He says that a notable feature of the Persian Empire was its integration of a great diversity of peoples into a single administrative system. Now this empire conquered the known world. Maybe there's some little islands here and there that they didn't get to. But they conquered the known world at that time, and they integrated into a single administrative system all of these diverse people groups there. And at the same time, it says they maintained a tradition of respect for the local customs and beliefs. They became one empire, but people could kind of do their own thing culturally. However, the people were encouraged 
to seek the king's welfare by observing the proper forms of their own religions. So why did they do this? Why was their philosophy so completely different than the philosophy of the Babylonians? Well, among other reasons, at least in part, it's because God stirred up their heart to do this. Because God had to get the children of Israel from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And so he moves in their hearts and he puts it in their heart that this is the way we're going to govern our nation. And that's how the Medes and the Persians govern. And that's why, very naturally, supernatural, God worked in their system of government to bring the people of Israel back to their land. The book of Proverbs says this. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Not just the Jewish king's heart, any king's heart. Stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God moved in Cyrus's heart, leading him to decree that the children of Israel could return to the land. Look at verse 2. Here's the words. It says, thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in, the house of, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, because he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with gold and with, with excuse me, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus gives permission to these captives that they can go back to Jerusalem. He doesn't mandate it. He doesn't require it. They didn't have to pick up and leave, but they were granted permission from doing so. If they wanted to go back, they could go back. If they wanted to stay where they were, they could stay where they were. Now, we hear that and we say, well, these are captives. If somebody left the prison door open, wouldn't everybody just get up and leave? Wouldn't everybody just get up and go back? Well, actually, no. It's estimated that there were some 2 million Jews that were captive or in captivity there in Babylon. And of that number, 2 million, of that number, only 50,000 actually returned to Jerusalem based on this decree. Only 50,000 out of 2 million. And there's a variety of reasons as suggested as to why. In some cases, like Daniel, Daniel was probably 85 years old or older. He's not going to do very well trying to take a 900-mile trek from Babylon through the wilderness, through the desert area, back to Jerusalem. So in some cases, folks who were just a little too old and they weren't going to be able to make that particular trip. We can't fault them for that necessarily. It is what it is. But in other cases, and actually sadly to say, more often than not, the vast majority of people, of that 200 million people, chose not to return because they just weren't interested. They weren't interested in going back there. Now believe it or not, Babylon, yes they were captives, yes they were subjects in Babylon, but believe it or not, Babylon had actually been pretty good to them. In Babylon, they were, even though they were captives, allowed to purchase land. In Babylon, they were allowed to operate businesses. In some cases, some of the people became so affluent, even in captivity, that they were able to hire servants to work for them. And so Babylon was a place that had been pretty good. And so there are some that couldn't make the trip because it was physical, but the vast majority didn't make the trip because they, they're, because their reasoning was primarily determined by just not wanting to go. I don't want to leave Babylon. I don't want to trade in the comforts of this life that I'm living for some arduous trek across the desert only to return to some place that's lying in ruins. I'm not signing up for that. I'll stay here. I'm content here. 
The vast majority of people did. Those that did return were primarily those of humble means. And, And quite frankly, you could say it this way, it was primarily those that had nothing else to lose. Things stink for me here. They're going to stink for me when I get there. What's the difference? I'd rather go home and live in that particular place. Maybe I have a better shot there. I would suggest to you that the decision that was placed before these folks, they were permitted to go, they weren't decreed to go, that the decision that was placed before them is really no different from the lives that you and I are living. Because as long as we are moving along and we're enjoying the comforts of life, just like these folks there in Babylon, it is so easy for us to get distracted. Where we find ourselves getting more and more focused on the temporal rather than on the eternal. And suddenly we look around and the creature comforts of this life that we've just started picking up one by one by one, the creature comforts of this life have consumed us. Our decisions, they begin to be made based on, well, what sort of impact is this going to have on how I'm going to feel when this is over? Or how will it impact my level of comfort? Or we ask ourselves, well, how will I benefit financially if I make this particular decision? And what has happened to us is we have lost focus on the eternal and have stead- we've become temporal creatures. And God's leading and God's direction, it's faded out of the equation. In fact, in many situations, it doesn't even factor into the equation anymore. And it happens. It happens to every one of us on different scales and different degrees. And no doubt there are some of us presently in this room where it is happening to us. That our hearts have sort of wandered away from the things of God. Now you're still here, and I know you're here, and I appreciate your attendance and so on. But if you're honest with yourself, you say, you know what? I've become or I'm becoming distracted. Well, I would suggest to you this, that God's word for us this morning, the the heart that he wants to communicate to us this morning, is that we would return. That we would once again fix our eyes on the things that are eternal. You know, the book of Hebrews, many of you are familiar, the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the, the hall of faith. And like we have hall of fames for various sports organizations that are out there, it's a place where certain people, attention is drawn to certain people that accomplished far and above what others have accomplished. And the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is one of those chapters that takes a look at various lives of individuals that because of this great faith that they had, simple faith certainly, but it was a great faith. And because of that, they've become an example to you and I. So if you would please, would you turn to the back of your Bibles to the book of Hebrews? It's about four or five books from the end of your Bible. So if you've gone to Revelation too far, And the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, it recounts for us some of the great men and women that were faced with the exact same dichotomy that you and I are faced with. Live for this world or live for the next world. So starting in verse 8, I want to draw your attention to one of these men. This is Abraham. It says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going, and by faith, he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose builder and designer is God. Now, I know that some of you like living in tents. You, you consider this your vacation. I don't get you people. We have very nice homes with beds and air conditioning and all that kind of stuff, and you guys enjoy it, but the reality is this. Abraham left a period, a place of great wealth. 
He was a man of great means, and he left all that, and for the rest of his life, he lived in tents. And he did so because, as that last verse I read said, because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. The, the point is this. It's not, well, if I want to really be for God, I've got to live in a tent. I can't have a home. That's not the point at all. The point is this. God led him to live in tents. And because he was looking forward to what God wanted for his life, if God led there, that's where he would go. And so that's why he ends up in tents. Similarly, Moses. We learn in Hebrews, starting in verse 24, that Moses refused to settle for the creature comforts of this world. Instead, it says that he chose to follow God's leading. He was a prince in the city there, or in the empire there, but to follow God's leading and to suffer with the people of God. So starting in verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting passing pleasures of sin. Verse 26, because, why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to the reward. Well, you can read the entire chapter and you read about Gideon and you read about Sarah and you read about David and you read about Rahab and you read about person after person after person in the Scripture. Men and women, no different from you and I, but men and women that were stirred by God to action. And because they were stirred, they were determined, I'm going to do what God is calling me to do. I'm going to follow him. And regardless of the cost, I'm going to follow him. Now let me read one final word from the book of Hebrews regarding these men and women of faith. And not just them, but you and I. This applies to you and I. It applies to the people there in the book of Ezra. This is back in verse 13 of Hebrews 11. It says, All of these died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were excuse me, strangers and exiles on the earth, because people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they could have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. They desire a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Now skip down to verse 35 of the chapter. It says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats' clothing. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves. They chose to live that way because God led them to live that way. And though none of us would naturally make that choice, I can live in a mansion or I can live in a cave. I could wear nice clothes from the mall or I could wear sheep's clothing or whatever. None of us would make those choices, but because God led them to, they did. Notice that phrase there where it says, of whom the world was not worthy. You know, you could look at that and you could quickly read and say, interpret that as, wow, these are great guys. We were not worthy to have them, you know, share this earth with us. But that's not the meaning of that phrase here. The point is actually not looking to these people as whether they're worthy or unworthy, but rather looking at this world as worthy or unworthy. And in these people's minds that lived this particular way, this world was not worthy of them wasting their lives on it. 
It refers to their determination. You know what? I'm not going to waste my one life that I have to live for the creature comforts, really, and only of this ball of dirt that we live on. These folks were determined that we only have one life to live and we're going to live it rightly. They were going to, go, they were going to follow God's stirring and they were going to go where God was leading. And that's what we see is taking place for that small remnant of believers in Ezra chapter 1. Two million possible, only 50,000 take up the call and go. Every one of them granted permission to go. Everyone granted approval to leave. But for some, the comforts of prosperity and familiarity to go to some other city that was lying in ruins was just not something they were interested in doing. And only a very small percentage went. Now going back to Ezra 1, look at verse 5. It says this, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, <clears throat> everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now this is the second time in these five verses that we see this phrase, God stirred up. The first time that we saw it was where God moved in the heart of Cyrus to issue a decree. And there in the middle of verse 1, it says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Now again, we have the Lord stirring up the spirit of this 50,000 people. A remnant. God's moving. God's prompting. And their responsibility as God is moving on their hearts. Did God move on the hearts of a million people? Two million people? We don't necessarily know. But he moved on the heart, I can tell you this, of more than 50,000 people. And some of those people, their responsibility was to respond and they chose not to. And they put away that still small voice that was leading them and guiding them. And God is doing the same thing in our day as well. He is continually stirring the hearts of his people. And if God is not stirring your heart at this time about something, you should be concerned about that. God is continually stirring our hearts. And that's because he's leading us and he's guiding us and he's directing us forward. We're on a journey. We're walking with him. And he's a, a couple of steps ahead of us. And it's our job to catch up and to stay with him. He's stirring our hearts. Sometimes he stirs our hearts to the big things. Where he's stirring our hearts and we feel, you know what? I think it's time just to pursue that new job. To move from this field to that field. To go in that particular direction. That's a big thing that God is stirring in our hearts. Sometimes it's about beginning a relationship. Or in some cases, ending a relationship. And he's stirring our hearts. Other times, it's about taking on a new calling, a new mission that God has designed for you and he's leading you and he's directing you in that regard. They're big things. And he does that from time to time. But on a daily basis, it's the minor things. It's those little things that you know about that the rest of us aren't paying attention to. Like, for instance, God's saying, you know what, we're coming on a new year. This next year, I'd like you to read your Bible in a year. And he's been stirring your heart and you've been thinking about it. And I should get one of those little papers, you know, that tells me what to read on a daily basis. And you're thinking about it regularly. It just pops up. That's God stirring your heart. Your responsibility is to respond to that, to get the paper and to start on January 1st, reading your Bible through in a year. For some of us, it's about making a relationship right. There's something, there's a tension between us and another person. And we know it. We, we've just kind of been ignoring it, smiling at one another. But I need to make it right. And God's stirring your heart to do that. Your responsibility is to respond. For some of us, it's about, you know what, I need to share my faith more. And for years, I keep saying, you know what, I don't share my faith because I don't really know what to say. I'm not equipped. Well, this is the year that God has stirred your heart and you say, you know what, this year I'm getting equipped. I'm going to do what I need to do. And yeah, I wasted four, five, 10, 20, 30 years of not being equipped, but I got another five, 10, 20, 30 years ahead of me and I'm going to be equipped for them. God's stirring my heart. My responsibility is to respond. 
And just like the men and women in the book of Ezra, he stirs our hearts daily toward his will. And our responsibility is to respond. Where we count the cost, and like them we say, like those in Hebrews 11, you know what? This world is not worthy of my life. I'm not willing to trade the leading of God and his will for my life for some temporal creature pleasures. I think this morning is a good day to take inventory of our lives and to allow God to search into the deep places. When I was young, uh, in high school, I guess it was, I worked in the mall at a retail store. I kind of enjoyed it. People come in and come out and you get to talk to people and all that kind of stuff. I like to talk uh, and, and all that. But what I really enjoyed was Christmas time because it was a zoo. It was insane. And it was like, can I survive without shooting myself or something like that? You know, it's just like, this is craziness here, but it's awesome. I can't wait. And people would come in and they would throw stuff all over the place. I can't find a medium. Maybe if you didn't throw it in the air, ma'am, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And you would, at the end of the day, the gate would go down. You look around and it was like, there was a war that just happened in here. And then you'd have to kind of put it all back together and get it back to the shelf. And how did this thing get way over here? And put everything back where it had to go. And then the manager would come or the assistant manager, and he or she, they would go and they would look and they would say, you know, we only got three sweaters left of that particular style. We need to go in the back and get more and bring it out. They would take inventory because everything was so crazy that everything would just, let's just survive and get through this particular day. And now we would stop and we would settle and we would take inventory and we could see where we were at. And I would suggest to you, it is very valuable and very good for us on regular bases, or bases, I don't know, to come back and to say, God, where am I with you? How have I been drifting? How have I been wandering? How have I gotten off track? How have my eyes shifted from heaven down here to the earth? And I didn't even notice it. Take inventory. And I want to do that today. I want to take just a few moments, just in a little bit of silence, for us to, to just hear the Lord. You're going to be busy. You've got things to do, cookies to make, to bring to your favorite pastor. You know those things. <laughs> Don't bring me cookies. I'm on a diet. Bring me fruit. Bananas. I like bananas. Please don't bring me anything. That's not why I'm, I'm saying it here. All right. But you're going to be busy later today, and I think it's a perfect time to just take a couple of minutes now before we go and we run out and to say, God, you have freedom to speak into my heart, and I'm going to give you some space so I can hear from you. So let's go before the Lord and let's pray.